Hello, I'm Susan Gordon, and you're listening to The Culture Ball, where I fearlessly tumble down rabbit holes lined with books, poems, and art. This week I'm in Bloomsbury, sure that in a neat iron-bound garden I will find, concealed, a new rabbit hole. But on the way, I get stuck. A tree branch has stuck my sweater and won't let me go. I'm stuck on a knotty subject, the connection between creativity and place. I think of Bloomsbury's flat-fronted terraces, of brightly coloured doors and tiled porches, of libraries lit by glowing lamps. I remember that feeling I've always had, that to walk in Bloomsbury, or even sit in a cafe here, is to snatch a borrowed time. There's a barrier which stands between me and Bloomsbury, and it's not a thought, or an idea, or something someone said. It's half a million pounds, or a number like that. It's the price of living there. And while there are other London postcodes equally inaccessible, Bloomsbury is uniquely forbidding. I have no legitimate reason to be in Bloomsbury. I'm not supposed to be here. And what are these shadows that fall across me? The British Museum, a colossus, then Senate House, fiercely geometric, impossibly heavy, an exclamation mark plunging out of the land. It has hundreds of eyes, countless tiny peeping windows that signal intrigue. For George Orwell, the building signals something else, and it inspired the Ministry of Truth in 1984. Then there's the plough of traffic. Buses are bloated, bicycles skittering, taxis swerving. It's the beat of mismatched machinery, and none of it is ready to make way for a soft, yielding human. The present presses forward. The present is also temporary, flimsy, malleable as clay. But dates, house moves, and books... They're fixed. A literary reputation? Pretty fixed. It proves more powerful than anything else, and for me the Bloomsbury Group and its most celebrated sister, Virginia Woolf, is most present of all. In 1904, Virginia Stephen, as she was then, and her three siblings made 46 Gordon Square their new home. She was 22. Her mother had died nine years before. Her father died that year. A small assembly of artists and writers meets regularly, in 1912, Roger Fry, an art critic and friend of the family, calls them the Bloomsbury Group. He's drawn a line between creativity and place, and this is affirmed over the decades that follow. Walsh's 1927 novel, To the Lighthouse, has its genesis around the corner from Gordon Square. This is Wolf. Then one day, walking round Tavistock Square, I made up, as I sometimes make up my books, To the Lighthouse, in a great, apparently involuntary rush. For historians, writers, readers today, a symbiotic relationship between creativity and place is alluring. It fires the imagination. A place may become a locus of hope. It may foster an almost romantic attachment. And we see this in fictional stories. It's Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead. It's Jane Austen's Pemberley. A place, because it is physical, may invite some, and it may exclude others. I worry that parts of the city are only breathing in the past, can only breathe in some other time. Hashim Mohammed is a writer and barrister. His 2022 book, A Home of One's Own, addresses the housing crisis. Its title was a nod at A Room of One's Own, Wolf's 1929 essay. Mohammed writes, Wolf was interested in what it means to be shot out of, for example, a library or an Oxford college, places which are engineered specifically to create intellectual development and change. 
There's an interplay between not just the intellect and place, but the kinds of personalities that are allowed to develop within it. Muhammad highlights the stresses and limitations that housing insecurity places on a person. His warnings resonate, and they're allowed on London's most expensive streets. They're allowed a still if creativity is not only linked to a place, but apparently dependent on it. A relationship between creativity and place has a third dimension, the past. The past is, however, subject to our own workmanship. The past is an act of creation. The facts guide us, but they alone are not enough. So I must question my imagination. When I look closer, I find that a rarefied address, or a leather-bound address book, did not always insulate the Boonsby group. Roger Fry was an astute art critic, but another venture of his, the Amiga Workshops, was not successful. The Amiga Workshops were staffed by freelance artists, contributing for weekly wages, and their work anonymous. After six years, Fry liquidated the business. In a letter to a friend, Sir Michael Sadler, in 1919, he wrote, I kept it alive by dolls out of my own pocket during the war, believing that some kind of revival might take place when it was over. Now I've come to the end of my tether. I've lost £2,000 and five years of gratuitous hard work. Virginia's sister, Vanessa Bell, was an artist. I guessed at a daring and bohemian existence, basically unencumbered by financial stress. But when I look at Bell's paintings, I find that far from enjoying an exuberant freedom on the canvas, she seems to be holding back. The colours are gloomy and the subject's unimaginative. There's chrysanthemums from 1920, pheasants from 1931. These paintings were not composed with joy, it seems, and they have little interest in portraying it. Bell also lacks the precision and flair of a more mature artist. Place is not the same as biography, but it contributes to it. I wonder if this place Bloomsbury, with a life and personality all of its own, obscures as much as it reveals about these writers and artists. When I first looked at Bell's work, my expectations were based on a biography I had constructed. A mistake, although it may be hard to avoid with the fame of the Bloomsbury group. Theirs is essentially a composite biography, and the response to biography can be superficial, just as a response to a person can be. A lifestyle, mannerisms, or some minor point may delight or annoy. Biography is liable to warp in the eyes of the stranger. As Fry himself points to in his book, Vision and Design, we don't stop to consider how much the pictured past corresponds to any reality. We picture our Middle Ages as an almost entirely occupied with religion and war, our Renaissance as occupied with learning, and our 18th century as occupied in gallantry and wit. In an earlier passage, he writes, To many people, then, it seems an easy thing to pass thus from the work of art to the life of the time which produced it. We all, in fact, weave an imagined Middle Ages around the parish church, and an imagined Renaissance haunts us in the college courts of Oxford and Cambridge. I think Fryer's right. The hallowed streets of Bloomsbury have produced their own effect. There's no harm, and likely fun to be had, with a bookish walking tour that takes in Gordon Square. French critic Roland Barthes, however, stood against looking to a writer's biography for an understanding of their fiction. His 1967 essay, The Death of the Author, rejects the well-trodden path of a critic or journalist reading into an author's life to understand their work more deeply. For us, it is language which speaks, not the author, 
he counsels. His arguments have a lot of credibility. I believe they're essential to an author's creative freedom. I also know there are times when we unconsciously, even helplessly, carry some understanding of the author with us as we venture into the first pages of their novels. One cannot throw off or unlearn a piece of information. By publishing A Room of One's Own, this based on two lectures delivered at Cambridge and the later Three Guineas, author was engaging in what I would call activism. In this context particularly, it seems right that we should seek to understand her life more fully. Her decree was precise. She, the fiction writer, must have a room of one's own and 500 a year. A while ago I got curious about how much £500 was worth then. A 1925 entry in Hansard, four years before, details average wages in response to a query from the Minister of Labour. An able seaman earned £14 a month and a fireman £15, so £500 was about three times a working man's annual wage. Even if you have not read a word written by Virginia Woolf, you will know her image, and an image makes an impression, and the impression here is not a fleeting wisp, a thought soon forgotten. It's an image as impression as thumbprint, indent, memory. Does this inevitable absorption of place, image, and biography change a reading of Woolf's fiction? Bart has declared that on the printed page, our only medium is language. The voice loses its origin, he wrote. Yet the Bloomsbury group is an origin story, and origin stories matter. They also grant us preconceptions, potentially an attachment to comfortable ideas. If we're to hear Virginia Woolf's voice, and that of another Bloomsbury author, Ian e. Forster, with absolute clarity, or at least receive their work in a new way, we must put the origin stories aside, at least temporarily. In the first pages of Mrs. Dalloway, I learn that Clarissa lives in Westminster. The king and queen are at the palace. Her friend's name is Hugh Whitbread. We glimpse scenes in Pimlico and Piccadilly. I know this is the work of Virginia Woolf. Its outlook is narrow, I say, and the upper class is narrow. I also don't care much for hats or engagements that don't quite come off. I may turn away from it. It's not for me, I decide. I put it down. But if Philip Pullman was writing about the glories of these parks and houses, and a minister's wife, the planning of a party, the boom of a motor car travelling through 1920s London, and how everyone stops to look at it, then it could be the beginnings of a fairy tale. And we know that a fairy tale must deliver darkness and ugliness, or it's not a fairy tale. Mrs. Dalloway delivers this darkness. In immersive, unrelenting prose, we wade in the shallow, bitter envy between two women. Elsewhere, a deep and terrifying portrayal of what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder. Its prose is radical, that I always understood, but only by disengaging with the Bloomsbury origin story can I appreciate that Mrs. Dalloway could be read as an elaborate fairy tale and a fairy tale is one of the most reliable methods of storytelling that exists. It's true that narration is a tradition of the fairy tale, and Wolf purposely diminishes the narrator's voice, replacing it with an eternal monologue or stream of consciousness. Yet a key theme is the violent disruption of peace and comfort, as it is in fairy tales. We also witness the cruel, metaphorical caging of female characters, and this is pretty specific to fairy tales. What it lacks... Where it diverges from a fairy tale 
is the absence of a happily ever after. But wait, what's this? In the novel's final pages. At Carissa's party, she and her husband are delighted by the appearance of their daughter Elizabeth. The hopeful Peter Walsh is reunited with Clarissa, and she reunited with her friend Sally, that she felt so passionately about. What does the brain matter, Sally asks, compared with the heart? Thank you for listening to this slightly longer episode of The Culture Bore. I hope you will join me next time as we go into the woods. <laughs>